chapter 41. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then I'm going to read verses eight through 20 and then 21 through 29 when we come to them. Isaiah chapter 41, it says, keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying it is ready for soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. In chapter 41, it begins with a scene from a courtroom. God calls the nations of the planet Earth and he calls them in for a discussion. For judgment. Jesus, by the way, is in the business of freedom. There is something in the human heart that craves freedom, the freedom to love our families, the freedom to live our lives, the freedom to worship, the freedom to work, the freedom to speak, the freedom to associate with whomever we wish. We as human beings abhor incarceration. We resent restraint. We hate bondage. We despise enslavement. But we are all slaves. The Bible says to sin and to death. We in the world in which we live, we are slaves until Jesus comes and sets us free. And remember, in the New Testament, it says he whom the son has set free is free indeed. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes and he said it was for freedom's sake that Jesus has set you free. And that is the gospel. Jesus sets us free. The Lord can free us and does free us from the law of sin and from death. That is the penalty of sin and the power of sin and eventually the presence of sin. And here's the big question. Can we as Christians live free? Can we live in freedom? Can we live in righteousness and godliness in this present life? Are you afraid to live for Jesus? In this chapter, Isaiah is going to remind us of God's ability, God's power to execute judgment on anyone and everyone who rebels and resists and defies the true and the living God. That's what it is. 
That's the meaning in verses one through seven. We see God's power to provide and protect Israel, his people in verses eight through 20. And then we're going to see God's power to prove that he's the only true and living God in verses 21 through 29. The Lord Jehovah is the God of the Jewish people, but he's also the sovereign God who directs the course of history. All of human history is bound up in the plan of God. From the moment that God created the heavens and the earth, he created the heavens and the earth in order to bring about his plans and purposes. He places Adam and Eve in a garden. They rebel and reject God's command. And all of human history is surrounded by and focused on God's redemption. Of all of humanity, when we look around the planet in which we live, we're sometimes distracted. We sometimes get confused and we lose track of of God's plans and God's purposes. As a matter of fact, in this series of chapters, we saw the greatness of God in chapter 40. The greatness now of his purpose will be revealed in chapter 41. The greatness of his pardon in in chapter 42. In chapters 44 through 45, we'll see the greatness of his promises. Seven times, seven times in the next few chapters, the Lord will say, fear not. Don't be afraid in verse 10, in verse 13, in verse 14 of this chapter, in chapter 43, verse one, in in chapter 43, verse five, in chapter 44, verse two, in, in chapter 44, verse eight. And the reason why he's saying it over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's because they're panicked. Remember what's happened, what's happening In the prophetic sense, God is going to take Judah and Jerusalem. He's going to allow the Babylonians to take the children of Israel captive. They're going to be drugged across the Euphrates to the city of Babylon. Their homes will be destroyed. Their families will be separated. The temple will be destroyed. And life as they understand it looks like it's over with. The unthinkable has happened. And they've come to the conclusion, at least in some of their hearts, that God has abandoned them. And they're afraid. But God has a plan for Israel. And the reason why this becomes important to you is because if God is willing to fulfill his plans and purposes in the children of Israel in order to accomplish his plans and purposes, how much more is God willing to accomplish his plan in your life? Your life is not a meaningless life. It is not an insignificant life. You are here for a reason. God has a plan for you and a purpose for you. Your life is not an accident. The place that God has placed you and the circumstance that God has placed you, the intelligence that God has given you, the gifts that God has given you, the course in which God has placed you and is directing you, it is not an accident. There were lots and lots and lots of reasons to be afraid. And there was only one reason. There was only one reason not to be afraid. 
And that's because God said so. Don't be afraid. The Lord says, because I'm with you. The Lord wanted to calm their fears and remind them that he was with them, that he was going before them, that he was preparing the way, that he was working on their behalf. And in these chapters, and particularly these next few chapters, the Lord reveals three servants. The Lord is going to require a king. He's going to require a country. And he's going to require a Christ. The king is Cyrus. The country is Israel. And the Christ is Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. And because he has a plan and a purpose and because he's bringing human history into fruition, he the Lord has this metaphor of a trial, if you will. Court is in session. And as the court is in session, God is calling the nations to come. And look what it says. Keep silent before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. So here's the deal. God's issuing a summons for the nations of the earth to come together for an inquisition, for a trial. Attendance is mandatory. And God has the ability to make sure all the nations are in attendance. By the way, can you imagine when God does speak and God says, I require your attention. I need your presence. Does God have the ability to do that? Can God call you into his presence at any moment? Yeah. Some of you have an aneurysm right now and it's ticking and ticking and ticking. Right now, it's in your veins. It's in your circulatory system. It's it's traveling throughout your body. For some, it's making its way to your brain. And the Lord can turn the lights off in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. God has the ability to make sure that all of the nations are in attendance. And by the way, the coastlands are the continents and the country within those continents. When Isaiah is writing this, he's thinking of the Mediterranean rim. He is thinking of what you and I would call modern Turkey and Greece and Italy and Spain and the Iberian Peninsula and all of the the nations that surround the northern part of Africa. Attendance of all of the nations are to come together. The people are the Gentiles and they're instructed to approach the bench with silence and with reverence. They're summoned before God to answer for their wickedness and for their cruelty and for their rebellion. And by the way, this conversation is not simply judgment. It's that and more. It's an invitation to present facts to dispute the issues at hand and to draw conclusions. And the reason why this becomes important for the Jew who is reading this book, this book of Isaiah, remember their life has been obliterated a hundred years from this prophetic council. They're going to be taken into Babylon. They're going to be reading the scroll of Isaiah and all around the nations are going to be laughing and they're going to be saying, where was your God? 
Where was your God when your home was destroyed? Where was your God when your family was killed? Where was your God when you were taken captive? If your gods are so great and if they are so mighty, if you have such a great God, then why did he allow you to come into this miserable position? Sort of like what people say to you. If God says you're a good God, then why did he let you have cancer? Why did he allow your husband to walk out on you? Why did he allow your marriage to fail? If God is such a great God, then, then how do you explain your life? But God wants to prove that he really is God. And that idols are false and that he is true. The Lord says, and let the people renew their strength. You know why he says that? We're going to come and we're, we're going to have a little powwow, God is saying. We're going to have a little talk and we're going to have a little discussion and you're going to need to renew your strength. The reason why is because you're going to be contending with God. And by the way, if you are facing God in a conversation with God and God is going to ask and answer questions, you better have your strength on. The people are the Gentiles. They're instructed to approach the bench. They're instructed to approach the bench with silence and with reverence. And again, the Lord is basically saying this. I need you to think carefully. And I want you to prepare your arguments. I want you to write down your legal brief. I want you to defend your position. And he's going to open up the argument in the court case. He begins in verse 2 with, Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? In the opening argument, the Lord is going to remind them that he's already raised up a deliverer. Now, I want you to understand the incredible statements that are being made in the document that you're reading. Isaiah writes these words over a hundred years before they're even taken into captivity. He's writing over a hundred years in advance that a king is going to arise in the east who is going to deliver them from their captivity in Babylon and already return them back to the nation or to the land. So who is this man? Who raised up the one from the east? Well, we know that Abraham came from the east. Is this Abraham? Is this Cyrus, the Persian? He's going to be talked about, by the way, in chapter 45, and he's even going to be named by name. A king is going to come up from the east. He is a follower of a religious system called Zoroastrianism or the religion of Zoroaster. Is this the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, again, historically, I suspect that what Isaiah is doing, he's giving us the first brief glimpse of the Persian king Cyrus. It says who is raised in the east. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but if you go to verse 25 in chapter 41, it also says, I have raised up one from the north. 
Well, which is it? Is he coming from the east? Or is he coming from the north? Again, Cyrus the Persian is coming from the north and from the east. Because the perspective is always Israel. And the perspective is always Jerusalem. This is interesting to me. In the Bible, as far as God's geography is concerned, he evaluates the nations in terms of that tiny little strip of dirt. That's north of Egypt and south of Lebanon. (laughs) And so, the Lord speaks in the prophetic past tense. A future event spoken as if it has already occurred. And you're going to see that a lot in the Bible. In other words, God speaks as if a future event is already an established fact. And so when he says, who in righteousness called him to his feet, the idea being it is God who ordered and orchestrated this king. And by the way, Cyrus is going to consolidate the northern part of the kingdom with the Persians and the Medes. In a single day, he is going to come to Babylon. He is going to capture the city and he is going to be instrumental in freeing the Jews. And it says, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. The idea being is God's plan and God's purpose is he is going to make Cyrus, the Persian king, an unstoppable machine. He's going to allow him to become a king of kings. For what purpose? Because God has a plan for this guy. By the way, does Cyrus even know this? Does he know that God has a plan for him and a purpose? And that the circumstance that he places him in, the name that he is called, the village where he's going to grow up, the mother and father that he's going to have, the military conquests that he's going to experience... God knows every single moment of every single day of his life. And then in verse 3, it says, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had gone with his feet. The idea is nations aren't going to be able to stop him. He will pursue them. He, God has, is placing him on a path. And in verses 3 through 7, the nations tremble before him. And as they're trembling before this king who is going to become the king of kings, they turn to their self-made gods for deliverance, but they're going to prove useless. Look in verse 4. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am he. As God is making his argument, he's saying, hey, guess what? I occupy eternity. I know the beginning from the end. When it says, who has performed and done it? Again, it's in the prophetic past tense. From God's perspective, everything that he desires to do, he will do, and it is as good as done. Saying, calling the generations from the beginning. Here is the idea. Contrary to popular belief, the universe came into existence because God allowed it to come into existence. 
God established the planet Earth as the third planet from the sun. He made the, the sun the exact shape and circumference that it is so that human beings could live. He placed us in a physical universe. And see, again, as people are overwhelmed by the gigantic size of the universe, and they, we've discovered more than 200 planets in other um, solar systems and galaxies. Or we haven't seen that far into other galaxies. We've only been able to see into our own galaxy. But as we begin to catalog the galaxies and and we begin to write down the stars and as we begin to name the planets there are those people who think of us as an inconspicuous speck of dust in a gigantic world and they have no idea that God made the world and placed them on the planet so that he could have a friendship and a relationship with them And when he says, I, the Lord, am the first. It means when eternity has come into existence, he's there. And with the last, I am he. The idea is that if you go and project into the future, into the year 2000 and 3000 and 4000, when I was a kid growing up, there was a really dumb song that I actually loved called, you know, in the year 2525, if man is still alive. If woman can survive, they may find. And, you know, you go in the year 35, 45, 55, whatever. And when you come to the end of of the song, it says man has been here for 10,000 years for what he never knew. But now man's day is through. And then it has that sort of syrupy thing. And through the starlight and, the, or, and, and through eternal night and the twinkling of starlight, maybe so far away, maybe it's only yesterday. And, you know, in the 60s, it was like, well, that's heavy. That's truly profound. But the Bible projects into the future to the last moment of the last generation. When all the plans and all of the purposes and all of the reasons for humanity being on the planet come to an end, he says, I am there and with the last, I am he. He is the self-existent God. Who is the author? Who's the authority? Who has the ability to predict the future? When the Lord Jehovah says, I, the Lord, am the first, he means pre-existent, eternal, immortal. He is in control. And with the last means not only that he is there, but he has brought all things to their appointed end. No wonder the countries see in fear. No wonder the earth trembles. In verse 5, it says the coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. When the nations of the collection of all of humanity gather together in eternity future and stand before God, God is going to ask them this question. Why didn't you love me? Why didn't you serve me? You knew that I was the self-existent God. You knew I had revealed to you on more than one occasion that I created you, that I loved you, that I am the reason why you were here. And by the way, the nations seem to to be judged 
on the basis of their friendship and their relationship to Israel. Remember, God has three servants. He has Cyrus, who is going to liberate his people. He has Israel because he has a plan and a purpose for Israel, because after the Babylonian captivity, there's going to be 400, 500 years. And then a virgin is going to give birth. In a little dusty town called Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. The plan and the purposes of God and all of humanity is going to converge on the planet Earth. The coastline saw it and feared the ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and they came. This is interesting to me. They drew near. Because that is what God required. They drew near because the time of ultimate judgment was about to take place. By the way, who can resist the true and the living God? Now, the immediate context seems to be the nations cannot resist Persia and Cyrus. Remember, it was God's plan and God's purpose to allow the children of Israel to be taken into captivity in Babylon. But it's also God's plan and it's also God's purpose to set them free. And see, that's part of what you need to come to grips with. As you think about your life and you think about the plan that God has for you, your life, and you think about the circumstances of your life. And by the way, as you think about the pain in your life. And the tragedy and the drama and the limitations and the horror and the setbacks that you're experiencing. God has even a plan for that. The plan is to let you go. The the plan is to set you free. Remember, he's setting you free from sin and from death so that you can enjoy a friendship and a relationship with him. And look what it says as they're as they're putting their little plans together. In verse 6, it says, Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Hey, it's not all bad. Be of good courage. Here's the idea. Cyrus, the king of Persia, is coming and he's swallowing the nations. And here's how they deal with the problem. Verse 7. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Here's what's happening. The nations are saying, Well, okay, here's what we'll do. Um, Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, whose God is, is, he's a follower of Zoroaster, The Jews who are followers of Jehovah, here's what we'll do in Assyria. Here's what we'll do in Egypt. Here's what we'll do in the surrounding nations. We'll build bigger and better gods. If our little idols helped us a little bit, we'll fabricate larger idols, gigantic idols. You see, in their mind, they're thinking, if I can just create a god big enough, then he can overcome their God. But what's the problem with that mentality? The problem with that mentality is if you can fabricate, if you can create that God, then that's exactly what it is. It didn't create you. You created it. This is sarcasm, ladies and gentlemen. 
if the thing that you love and if the thing that you worship and if the thing that occupies your life is something that you created, then it's not the true and the living God. And so in verses 8 through 20, we see the power of God to provide and protect his people. Look what it says in verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Remember, that's what they were scared to death. God's through with me. God's finished with me. My life is over. The ministry is over. It is over. The home is destroyed. The family is scattered. The temple is gone. God is finished with me. But look what he says. I have chosen you. And I have not cast you away. Fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord, your God, will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not. You worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the Lord of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. In this particular passage, again, now we see we're talking about the power of God in human history to make history happen according to his own plan and his own pleasure and his own protection. That's what it means in verse eight. But you, Israel. Are my servant, 
Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, the Lord reminds them. Listen carefully. They are his. By his choice. And the children of the promises of God. Three times, by the way, Abraham is called my friend. In Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verse seven. In the prayer of Jehoshaphat and here. Here in in Isaiah 41, but later in the New Testament in James, chapter two, verse twenty three, there the brother of Jesus writes and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. By the way, the word friend here means Someone who is beloved. It means an object of affection, even desire. It means a person who enjoys friendship and intimacy. And the Lord reminds them of their godly heritage and that what they owe to the father of their faith, Abraham. And so when he says, but you, Israel, you are my servant. Well, I thought Cyrus was your servant. He is. There is a king who is going to be liberated and and God is going to raise him up and allow him to be in the exact right place at the exact right time in order to affect the liberation and the freedom of Israel. But God has a plan for Israel. Israel is a servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. He is reiterating the friendship and the fellowship in order to accomplish his plan. And so, it says in verse 9, You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you. I have not, I have not cast you away. Do you understand what's happening? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in such a dark Deep, black pit of desperation, depression, and despair that you woke up one morning and you toyed with the idea, God's through with me. God's finished with me. God has forsaken me. If ever they needed a message of hope, it was then. I'm not through with you. I haven't forsaken you. I have chosen you. Cyrus is my servant, but Israel is also my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you away. The idea is despised you. You see something else, though. When he says, I have taken you from the ends of the earth, the idea is that after the Babylonian captivity is complete, the Jews gather together and they return to the land. I think that there's another picture here. Because, remember, the land was destroyed in 70 AD. And the Jews were scattered all over the planet Earth. As a matter of fact, when it says, and called you from its farthest regions. 
When the Babylonian captivity resulted in the return of the Jew to the land, it was from far away from the Mediterranean rim, from the northern coasts of Africa to the peninsula of India, to the, the, the city Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Italy, Spain. But do you realize in 1948, Jews came from South America and Central America. They came from the southern tips of Africa and Asia. They came from everywhere and they converged on this little piece of dirt that we call Israel. By the way, it's an act of pure grace. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's not merited on their part whatsoever. The Lord, and I want you to think this through. The Lord says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You know what else it says? The Lord might have reasonably despised them. And the Lord might have reasonably cast them away. Their sins were many. Their rebellion and their resistance was breathtaking. Question. Did God have every right to say, we're done, we're done here? Many times is right. How much idolatry do I have to put up with? How much sin, resistance and rebellion do I have to put up with? How much agitation and grief must you heap upon me? But guess what happens? God says, I'm committed to you. I'm going to see this through with you. Now you understand the meaning of the words in the New Testament when the writer says, he who has begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is this faithful to Israel, when he had every reason to resist them and reject them, but he didn't, because God wasn't finished with them, God had unfinished business. And God has unfinished business with you. You know how I know that? Because even though you're trying to hold it in with all of your might, I can hear you sucking air all the way up here. The fact that you're able to inhale and exhale. The fact that you're still listening to this message. The fact that most of you, perhaps not all of you, but most of you will wake up tomorrow morning. Means that God has unfinished business with you. In the future captivity, Israel will certainly feel alone and abandoned. But God comforts them. By the way, when you feel alone and abandoned, when you're dejected and depressed, you need someone to remind you. Of what God says in the New Testament. I have chosen you. And I have not cast you away. By the way, Paul will repeat that concerning Israel in Romans chapter 11. There are those who believe that God is done. That Israel is through. But in Romans chapter 11, Paul reminds his readers. That God isn't finished with Israel. I believe that one day the Lord is going to gather his church to heaven. 
I believe that one day the scales will fall from Israel's eyes and there will be an awakening unlike the world has ever seen. Many Jews will come to the realization that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Christ and is the Lord. And that's going to infuriate the Antichrist. Because remember, God loves Israel and Antichrist hates them. God has unfinished business with them. And so Antichrist will devote his short-lived kingdom to their destruction. I believe that the Antichrist will deceive many, but there will be a group of people who will embrace Jesus and reject the Antichrist. Look what it says in verse 10. He repeats the admonition, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you and my righteous right hand. You understand what's happening? Three reasons are given by the Lord. He gives three reasons why you shouldn't be afraid. He gives three reasons why you can experience freedom from fear and freedom from horror and freedom from abandonment. Imagine you're in counseling. Some of you go, that's not hard for me to imagine. I am in counseling. And your therapist says, you're struggling with issues of rejection and fear of abandonment. You're afraid. Well, let me save you some money. Just buy this tape. It's going to be a lot cheaper than the therapy. He gives three reasons why you can experience freedom from fear and freedom from horror and freedom from abandonment. Look at the reasons that the Lord gives. Fear not. Look what he says. Number one reason His presence. I'm with you. I'm afraid. And the Lord whispers in your ear, I'm with you. Do you remember what Jesus said in the New Testament? I am with you. How long? Temporarily. I'm with you until you become such a stinking jerk monster that I can't stand to be with you anymore. Jesus says, I am with you always. Aren't you glad it says always? Aren't you glad it doesn't say I am with you depending on how well you're about to do? He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The only person who can have that kind of confidence is a person who can wind up at the end of the age in the future. So he appeals to his presence. I am with you. He appeals to his relationship. Look what it says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. This is a personal relationship. I'm your God, not Buddha. Not Allah. I'm your God. I'm the one who made the agreement with you. I'm the one who showed up. I'm the one who's been with you. I'm the one who revealed himself to you. I am the one. I am your God. And then he gives his assurances. And they're threefold. Look what it says. 
I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These assurances are also the threefold of his power. I will strengthen you. It's the Lord is our fortification in time of weakness. And particularly when you're afraid and when you're discouraged and you're depressed and you feel so shattered. And you think, I don't have the strength to even get up. I can't do this even one more day. And the Lord says, I'll strengthen you. He's your fortification in times of weakness, in times of difficulty, in times of opposition. And the word, the word combines the meaning of seizing and grasping or taking, taking hold. I will strengthen you. The idea is that he grabs a hold of you. And infuses into you. The strength that you need. Not for every single moment of every single day, but for this moment and for today. And then he'll give you guidance and direction and support. And look what it says. Yes, I will help you. And by the way, it's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew where he goes, yes. Yes, I will help you. The, the phrase means everything that I just said, you can put it in a great big pile and I'll make good on the deal. And look what it says. I'll help you. I will help you. Isn't that amazing? I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord lifts you up from your circumstances, from the circumstances and he lifts them up so that the circumstances are beneath you. And the suggestion is, I will raise you up by my righteous right hand. By the way, the right hand of God in the Old Testament and as well as in the New Testament in the book of Revelation is, suge is suggestive of power and success. And if I might be so bold and you know those of you who go to this church and you know me and you know what I believe and I'm not a prosperity preacher by any stretch of the imagination. But here, the idea seems to also include prosperity. I'm reluctant to even tell you because so many people abuse the term. But I would be doing you a disservice and I would be misrepresenting the text. If I did less than tell you what this means. When God says, I will do it and I will raise you up by my righteous right hand. He is speaking of the power of God and the success of God and the prosperity of God. And so when the prophet writes, yes. He wants to impart assurance. That he will do exactly what he says. Now, you may not believe that God has unfinished business with the Jewish people. You might think. I don't care if God has unfinished business with the Jew. What about me? What about me? Well, what about you? Does God have unfinished business with you? Are you willing to accept these promises for yourself? 
Are you willing to accept the promise of Jesus? Do you accept the promise that Jesus would be with you and he would be in you? Are you willing to accept the promise of the comfort and power of the Lord? Are you willing to realize that God loves you and wants to help you in spite of the tragedy and the difficulty and the foolishness and the resistance and the rebellion and the rejection and the helplessness, even if you find yourself in a circumstance that's deserved? still wants to help you. Isn't that wild? Israel, as the people of the Lord, had enemies, persecuting powers, antagonism. Their wickedness and their rebellion is legendary. You've read the Old Testament. And as you read it, you've even said, Lord, just smoke them. You were right when you said that they were stiff-necked and arrogant. Just Why not go with the Mexican people? They're so much more happy and faithful and diligent. And then you remember something. The Lord speaks to you. I made a covenant with them. I made a deal with them. I made a promise to them. Just like I made a covenant with you and a promise to you and a deal with you. Remember when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? And I said to you that I would be your God and that I would come inside of you and that I would forgive your sins and that I would walk with you and that I would change you and I would transform you. Well, guess what? I'm still going to make good my deal, even though you're kind of a, a, a little bit on the wicked side. As the end of the age draws near and Satan and hell begin to gather all of their forces together. God gives Israel the assurance. That Israel's enemies will be overthrown. Look what it says in verse 11. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. Verse 11. Verse 12 and 13. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, there it is again, fear not. I will help you. And I've already told you this. When the Bible repeats something over and over and over again, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, I will help you. One of two things is really happening, and you've got to understand this. They are, might I be so bold, clinically terrified. And so over and over again, the repetitive reassurance takes place. I will, don't be afraid, I will help you. Four descriptions of the enemies are given, by the way. Number one, all those who are incensed against you. That means incensed is a word that speaks of fierce heat, satanic opposition. I I mean, have you ever been in a situation where the enemies are coming against you and it seems supernatural in its wickedness? 
And number two, those who strive with you, literally the men of your conflict. Number three, those who contended with you. That means the men of your feuds in the original language. They that war against you, literally the men of your warfare. But here's the description. The description is all of these foes, all of these enemies, all of these antagonisms are destined for for failure and doom and annihilation. They'll come to nothing, less than nothing. They will become like a non-entity. The promise is overwhelming defeat of the enemies, but also protection and strength and deliverance and the assurance that the help is going to come. Why is that important for you? Because when you're talking about physical and financial and emotional and spiritual and even corporeal enemies that come against you. You've probably been in circumstances where you go, Lord, I, I can't. I'm not strong enough to deal with this person. I'm not strong enough to deal with this illness. I'm not strong enough to deal with this circumstance. I'm not strong enough to deal with my family, with these people. I can't do it. And the Lord says, don't be afraid. I'll help you. Throughout the chapter, the children of Israel are told, don't be afraid. I will help you. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Oh, Lord, you're going to hurt Jacob's self-esteem. I mean, Lord, there's no reason to get into name calling. I love this verse. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you. You can almost hear the whining in the background. I can't do it. I can't. I just can't do it. It's just I can't. I can't. I can't get out of the dirt. I can't get out of the dust. I once heard a preacher who despised what he called worm theology. I hate worm theology. Well, God called Jacob a worm. And the next sentence is worth all the psychology books ever written and more. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Understand what he's saying. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, like a worm stretched out, prostrate. You know what a worm can't do? A worm can't stand on its own two feet. You know why. A worm has no feet. And because the worm can't stand. And because a worm by its very nature is next to the dust of the earth. And because a worm by nature is the object of disgust. And contempt. The Lord says to Jacob. You worm Jacob. But you're my worm. You're my little worm. It's those endearments. The people who really love you. I had that kind of endearment when I was growing up. My mom would say. You little fat head. But you're my little fat head. Hey, you know what? I have a fat head. I just have to learn to deal with it. And that's exactly what's happening here. 
And for the third time, the Lord says, I'll help you. The Lord guarantees his help and then he guarantees it with his own name. Fear not, I will help you, says the Lord. The word that's translated Lord in in the New King James is actually the word Jehovah. Yahweh. The self-existent one. This is my pledge. And then for the first time, Isaiah introduces a word that will become an important word in our study in the book of Isaiah. Redeemer. Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel. The word, by the way, Redeemer, isn't a noun. It's a verb. It's the verb goel. A kinsman. A redeemer. An avenger. And so when he says, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He is, in effect, giving us a glimpse, a peek into what it means to be the person who buys back. By the way, there is a, 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 a scripture in Leviticus chapter 25. You can probably tell I'm not going to be able to finish the chapter. In Leviticus chapter 25, in verses 48 and 49, it says, After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he can redeem himself. But Israel... Babylon, by the shores and the banks of the Euphrates River, is devastated and unable to help themselves. They can't free themselves. They can't liberate themselves. They have no, listen carefully, they have no power in and of themselves to return to the land of Israel. The only way that they are going to make it back, the only way that they're going to be able to fulfill the plan of God, God's going to have to do it. And for some of you, God brings you to that place where the only way that you're going to make it back, the only way that you're going to overcome the addiction, the only way that you're going to overcome the depression, The only way that you're going to overcome the discouragement, the only way that you're going to be able to overcome the pain is God's going to have to do it. But here's the point. He's willing to do it. Here's the reason. He calls Abraham his friend, but he calls the children of Israel his family. That's what the Redeemer is. That's what the kinsman Redeemer is. And God is going to transform the worm into a threshing sledge. That's the meaning in verses 15 and 16. 
Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and the glory in the Holy One of Israel. The Lord says, I'm you're a worm, but I'm going to transfer you into a lean, mean threshing machine. And by the way, a threshing machine, I want you to understand this is a new invention during the time of Isaiah. This is spikes. I want you to imagine a board and I want you to imagine the board filled with nails. And as the board is filled with nails, there's a gigantic piece of iron that keeps it the board flat, and as you drag the board filled with nails, it eats up and chews everything in its path. That's what Israel is going to become. By the way, have you ever heard of a man named Avigdor Kahalini? I read this week about this hero. He was a hero in the Israeli war in, in the Yom Kippur war. And Kahalani almost single-handedly held the Golan Heights for Israel. Kahalani was the leader of, of a brigade called the Oz Brigade. It, he was the commander of 12 Israeli tanks. And with 12 Israeli tanks, he held off 250 Syrian tanks almost single-handedly. And he was given the Israeli Medal of Valor, which is like our own Congressional Medal of Honor. It's the highest honor that Israel can give. This one man became like Samson and David. When God can take one person to fight off a hundred people and two people to fight off 10,000 people. That's not normal. Even if you're the governor, even if you are a film star and you've worked out most of your life, can you believe this? God takes Jacob the worm and transforms him into a python. That swallows things whole. God is going to accomplish his plan. He's going to do it by his servant Cyrus, and he's going to do it by his servant Israel, but he's also going to do it by this kinsman redeemer who is a close relative but also the Avenger. I actually believe that this is a pre-incarnate allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ who will show up and who will take care of the problem of sin, who will show up and take care of the problem of addiction, desperation, depression, discouragement. He's going to change everything. But I'll have to finish this chapter the next time we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that uh, 
you're in the business of setting us free. Lord, you can set us free because you are powerful. Because you are personal. Because, Lord, you know the beginning from the end. And Lord, as Isaiah contrasts and compares the true and the living God. With all of the false gods, they fail miserably. And Lord, we know, we know, we know that everyone worships something. Everyone worships the true and the living God. Or they worship themselves. Or they worship something that they have created or that is the product of their imagination. But we know that that's not real. And that's not able to deliver. And that's not able to save. In order to really be set free, in order to experience true deliverance, we have to have a right relationship with the real deliverer. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of every man and every woman, particularly the person who is scared to death to not be afraid. You'll help. Lord, I pray that you would help them through the Lord Jesus Christ. That they could experience forgiveness and newness of life and health and hope, strength. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.